Podcast. I'm Randall James, and I'm going to change it up a bit tonight. Randall, what are we going to do tonight? Well, Randall, we're going to be talking about variants. That's fantastic, Randall. Who are we going to talk about them with? Uh, tonight we have Tyler Kamstra. Hi, everybody. And Random Pal. I've spent too much time watching Counterpart recently. That did not do well in my brain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so tonight we're going to talk about variant rules in tabletop gaming and the role that they have available in, in our own games. Uh, we want to talk about D&D 5e. We want to spend some time on Pathfinder 2. And then we have some general thoughts across all of tabletop. Is, is that about right? Yeah. Yeah, that's about it. Uh, variants are a really cool subject. They're a really interesting way to get more out of a game system that you already know and love. And maybe you've been playing 5th edition for, what, it's been out six years now. Maybe you've been playing every edition of D&D since it was released almost 50 years ago. And maybe you don't quite want to jump to a new system, but you still want to try try something a little different. That's where variant rules come in. I want to touch on real quick just the difference between a variant and a house rule because there is kind of some gray area there. Generally, the biggest difference between a variant and a house rule is just scale. You might have a house rule like Magic Missile does 1d6 damage instead of 1d4 plus 1. Little fiddly bits like that you generally consider a house rule. A variant is something that's going to change some fundamental portion of the game. If you said... Everyone gets maximum hit points instead of rolling or taking the average or whatever, then you could consider that a variant. It's kind of a, like on that vague line between the two. But generally, variants will have some significant effect on how the game plays moment to moment rather than just like, here's this one thing that we've fiddled with that might matter sometimes. Okay, yeah. See, I had this idea in my head like, a variant is something that you find on the internet. <laughs> And a house rule is this terrible idea that somebody at your table had. So there's actually quite a few variant rules that are built into the core rule books and uh, and various other officially published content. And if we look at just D&D 5th edition, there's approaching 20, I want to say, variant rules just between the player's handbook and DMG. And some of them are radically impactful, you know, changing the ways that entire classes function, changing the ways that uh, that rests work, for instance, an incredible mechanic that we've talked about a lot. And then some of them are much smaller, things like uh, my personal favorite variant rule to rake over the coals, flanking, which we'll get to. What Wizards of the Coast have done is they've looked at these and they've said, okay, we really like this system as we wrote it, but we understand that this particular thing in playtesting has been a frequent point of, man, I just wish that something different, I just wish that there was something else to represent this, that there was some other mechanic that I could lean into to make this a bit more interesting. And with enough feedback, they said, okay, maybe let's keep this official version, but also write an official alternative option for if you want to add a little bit of spice in. How many of the variant rules in 5e are actually hangovers from previous editions? So you bring up flanking, which is a good example. In the base rules of 5e, there, there is no flanking, right? right? Correct. But flanking was huge in prior editions. It was. In, in fact, flanking was so big that it defined the 3.x rogues sneak attack class feature, basically. That was the primary way that you would get sneak attack. Now, of course, they said, okay, well, we're going to still incorporate that into sneak attack. It's just you need somebody within five feet of who you're shooting. Congrats, have your sneak attack. From things like that to things like encumbrance, 
basically the variant encumbrance turns it back into 3.x's encumbrance. There's several other things that you can get into. Technically speaking, multiclassing is a variant rule. Things like milestone XP are variant rules that are now literally written into published modules like it's the expectation. There's a lot of things that are holdovers, but have been held over in such a way that they're almost assumed that you should. Yeah, that makes sense. And so both for Pathfinder 2 and for 5e, in the published material, like in the source material, there are plenty of examples of variant rules. Uh, what about like homebrew content? When, when do you see homebrew content and say, this is a variant rule versus th- this is just a house ruler, you know, a, a well-disguised house rule? Like I said earlier, I'd go right back to that the scale question. So if the variant changes some fundamental rule of the game, you could consider it a variant. If it changes just like some numbers or the way one specific bit of like a spell or some character option or something, if if it just changes that, you could probably call that a house rule. But honestly, the difference between the two is basically just semantics. There's really no practical difference. It's mostly just how you discuss things. Okay, so a distinction without a difference. Yeah, exactly. Okay, perfect. All right, so a follow-up to this. Why would I use variants, and when would I bring them to my table? I think Tyler really did a good job introducing some of that. I think it really can be very neatly summed up as, I am going to run a game, and I want it to be slightly different than what the rulebooks say it should be. And there can be any number of reasons for that. Maybe it's because you have been playing this game for 50 years and you love the system, but you just you just want a little something different out of it. A couple examples, I've talked about using some things like training to level, or in 5th edition, uh, I introduced a thing where to combat the yo-yoing at 0 HP and standing back up that is so common at lower levels that... The second time you were stood up from zero in a day, you got a level of exhaustion, and every time thereafter. Small things like that, which are usually about adding verisimilitude, which D&D is a sort of high fantasy thing, right? It's meant to be these wildly powerful adventurers going off battling demons, dragons, whatnot, and saving the world. And that can be a really cool story to tell, but it can eventually get a little bit played out. And so bringing things back to a more realistic expectation where maybe I don't heal up overnight from all of my wounds, maybe I don't get a patron by by wandering around in the woods and wanting to pick up a warlock level, adding some verisimilitude is a great way to build investment because... If the players are experiencing something that they can relate to, that's going to make them a lot more invested in what's going on. So, Random, for our listeners at home uh, who don't own a thesaurus, what is a a verisimilitude, and where can I buy one? It is a very small tood. No. Um, (laughs) But it's very similar. Exactly. Well, and that's pretty accurate. So verisimilitude is making something seem more like real life rather than a high magic setting for your D&D. Maybe that's a, a low magic setting. Maybe it's resting being, like I said, you know, something more like gritty realism, which we will continue to beat today. Maybe it's something like you're 
Well, like, like things that were built into 5th edition base. You know, maybe it's magic items are rare, and so they are harder to find. And you can't just, you know, walk down to the corner market and, and purchase something easily for a set list price. Verisimilitude is a great example of when you might bring in a variant rule. We talked about food and food mechanics on a previous episode. So if you looked at those and thought maybe my high-level barbarian shouldn't be able to go a full year without eating, so you introduce a variant rule to address that. Like, that's a good example of when you've found something in the game that, you're, that you don't like or that you want to function differently. In this case, moving towards verisimilitude is a great idea, a great reason for introducing a variant for that issue. I think that makes good sense. Let's maybe get into examples. Do we want to hop into 5e and then we'll do Pathfinder uh, 2 next? Does that seem right? Yeah, I do want to give one quick word of warning before people start introducing variants to their games, because variants can be a lot of fun, and when you go reading through lists of variants, you might be like, oh, I want a bit of this and a bit of this and a bit of this. It's like buying candy real quick in the, uh, the checkout line at the grocery store. Like, I want everything. Go slow. Talk to your group about it. Uh, the 5th edition DMG recommends when you introduce a variant rule, always ask yourself, will the rule actually improve the game and will my players like it? Very easy to figure that out. Ask your players. And if people are hesitant about it, maybe don't do it. If if the whole group is willing to try and it doesn't work out, just establish that, okay, we might try this. Take it out if it doesn't work. Yeah, I want to see the Venn diagram of, of those two questions. Like, Okay, this rule 100% is going to improve my game. The players hate it. They hate it. <laughs> yeah. And any survival rule is inherently built to introduce suffering into what is a game. <laughs> but, but somehow it made things better. Yeah. yeah. I, sometimes Sorry, I you want to suffer off. a little bit. That's fine. The Pathfinder 2nd Edition Game Mastery Guide also has a warning about combining variant rules that's very good. To summarize just... If you use multiple variant rules, they are probably going to interact in a way that you did not anticipate. When you do introduce variants, be very cautious. Think about all the ways that they work. Think about how they might interact with each other. And think like a character optimizer and think how you are going to use those rules to break the game. Or just blame your players if they break the game since <laughs> it's their fault, obviously. Oh, it's yeah. always their fault. Yeah, so so I, I guess... A little bit of meta behind the scenes as we prepare the podcast. We have a list of things that we want to talk about, and we're going to talk about them. It's going to be great. Uh, we're we're not going to talk about variants that are just storytelling devices. We want to stick with kind of popular examples, and so we're not going to cover every possible variant. And so if you're sitting at home thinking, well, they didn't talk about my favorite variant, we're sorry, and we really meant to. And the next time we do one of these, we're totally going to cover that particular topic. Well, uh, <laughs> I think ignoring that... Vague future promise. Let's real quick. <laughs> Tyler, would you please continue to beat that dead horse so that we can go somewhere else? Yes. Okay. So my favorite variant for 5th edition is Gritty Realism. And I've talked about this on so many episodes before. No, Tyler, what's Gritty Realism? What is Gritty Realism? Okay, so Gritty Realism changes the way that rest mechanics work in 5th edition. So a short rest, instead of being one hour, is overnight. So you have to sleep for eight hours or whatever. A long rest is one full week and usually needs to be taken somewhere safe, like a town or a home base or something like that. And that alone, the way that it's presented in the book is mostly just, this just changes how healing works so people, so players can't take a nap in a dungeon and then crawl a dungeon over the course of three days. Like if they're hurt real bad, they've got to retreat 
get their stuff together, come back and try again. But the edge case interactions with the rest mechanics really change how your story works once you introduce gritty realism. Since you have so much more time between fights, like your players might have two fights in a day and be like, okay, I'm done. I'm real tired now. And that leaves more time for just the play acting parts of role playing. It leaves time for downtime rules. It leaves leaves time for more world building. Like all those things that happen between encounters really have a lot more room to breathe with the gritty realism rules. One thing that I just want to say, it, it, it finally occurred to me today as I was digging through this stuff about gritty realism for the podcast. There is also the opposite. Listen right next to it is heroic fantasy where a short rest is five minutes and a long rest <laughs> is one hour. And so if you feel like playing an MMO on paper, there you go. That's that's how you can get back to fourth edition. Carry on. It's so, warlocks. Just like, give me the coffee. <laughs> <laughs> Your leg's hanging off. No, it's not. <laughs> exactly. Come back here. No. Yeah. That. I. I, I guess on on the gritty realism side of it. I also want to point out. I, I feel like in every game I've, I've ever played, everybody's really uncomfortable mid session in saying, "And then we just spent the weekend doing stuff, and now we're back after the weekend." Uh, in other words, and what I'm what I'm really trying to articulate, like we never just in the middle of a session say, yeah, sure. A month went by, whatever. I went, I went back to the farm. I I picked some grapes. It was fantastic. It's always like, we have to fill the action Uh, versus if we think about our favorite stories, it's, it's quite common to say like, okay, it doesn't make sense. I don't need to hear about the road from here to there. Let's just start the next chapter with everything filled. If anything interesting happens, we'll fill it and back and then we'll be able to go. I think you could do that with Gertie realism. So sure. Let's use downtime rules from time to time. Let's sit and do some RP around the table, yeah, around the real world table, at the tavern <laughs> table, um, while drinking beer, while your character is also drinking beer. But, uh, you know, you do that from time to time, maybe once per session. And the rest of the time, if the answer is, and then we went back to town and we got a good nap and now we march back to the dungeon, fantastic. As we've talked about on previous episodes, that's an awesome way to world build, to flesh out your characters, to tell those interpersonal stories that don't involve swinging swords at each other. And yeah, if if you're in the middle of a session and your DM's like, okay, you guys need a week to take a long rest, what do you do for a week? Yeah, break out the background rules. Um, do some crime. I don't know. Yeah, it, it's the best background. It's really the only background. <laughs> it sure okay. is. So I know this is everybody's first introduction to Gertie Realism, but I think, I feel like we hit it. And then what was, I, I already forgot it. What was the other, the opposite heroic? Uh, heroic fantasy, I think is what they called it. Nice, okay. But it, it's like literally adjacent to it in yeah. the DMG, I think. Okay, perfect. Cool. I think the next thing we actually want to talk about was flanking. And as somebody who's only played 5e, I have, I've always, I think this is going to get spicy, folks. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I have heard flanking talked about. I've listened to an actual play where there was some flanking at one point, and now there's less flanking. So, hey, folks, what's uh... a... <laughs> so, so let me, let me dip into history just real quick before we set random loose on this. <laughs> <laughs> just sitting over here champing at the bit. Yeah. <laughs> So flanking dates back to at least third edition. I haven't played second edition enough to know exactly what the mechanics were there. I think there was something along the lines of backstab that was like diet flanking. Third edition flanking, if if you and an ally are on opposite, opposite sides of a creature's space, 
you each get plus two to attack rolls against that creature. Fourth edition, same thing. Pathfinder first edition, same thing. Pathfinder second edition, functionally the same thing, but it imposes the flat-footed condition, which is both, like, their AC drops by two, and it can trigger other stuff like sneak attack and some other class features and things. Fifth edition, flanking is a bit crazier. You get advantage on attacks against a creature that you're flanking. And advantage, really, really good in fifth edition. It's effectively plus three and a half, right? Uh, Roughly, yeah. Um, Which, if you haven't read, if you are somehow a frequenter of this site and podcast and you haven't read the fundamental math of D&D, which talks about uh, advantage, you should do that. We'll have it linked in the show notes. All right, yes. In in previous editions, flanking was perfectly fine. A, A flat plus two in an unbounded system, it matters a little bit at low levels, and then basically never again. You know, it, it particularly by the time you've hit kind of level eight-ish, your typical martial characters, if they've been optimized, they hit. You're to the point where you're missing on, like, a three down. Which, at that point, sure, flanking technically gives you one more chance to hit. Great. But advantage is an enormous problem for a lot of reasons. Because 5th edition is so limited in the types of things that it will grant, giving you advantage means that every other way of getting advantage is now less powerful. And there are a lot of things that have advantage worked into the power budget of them. One of the things that I like to use as a really easy example for uh, for this is kobolds, right? Pack tactics? Yeah. Right. So pack tactics, an enormous part of the power budget of the kobold is if I have somebody next to a person I'm stabbing, I have advantage. And that is such an enormous impact on the race that the race has a minus to a stat, which is something that you incredibly rarely see in 5th edition. They did take that out. Oh, well. Yeah. (laughs) Errata. Sure. Errata. Thanks. But even so, you know, on design... Before the errata, that's that's what he's saying. We think that this is so powerful that we need to give this race a drawback to compensate. So then to go from that to, ah, okay, well, rather than being a kobold and giving a big part of my power budget, I just have to put my familiar other party member summoned badger on the other side of this guy, and now I have advantage, is a problem. That power budget, while it's... Very tempting to say, ah, yes, I want to be able to have that. As a DM, there's very little reason for you to add it in the sense where this is meant to be a way for you to challenge your players. Because players are going to be thinking about combat tactics in a way that a lot of monsters won't usually, admittedly, humanoids, absolutely, they, you know, they would be. But, you know, your players are going to be actively seeking to flank pretty much all of the time if you give them this optional rule. And monsters are generally less intelligent, less teamwork-focused than a party of adventurers is. So it doesn't make a lot of sense to try and play them that way. So this is just giving a lot of advantage to your players and very rarely something that's going to help you. Now, compare this to something like spell points, where like this is just a way that to change a class works. Obviously, 
there is meant to be a this is not a make this class stronger or weaker this is just make this class different so that you can play a different fantasy but advantage from flanking just immediately makes all of your player characters stronger and that's without even talking about edge cases so i'll say this does cut both ways though right so if your party composition is that you have you know two fighters two tanks uh, two characters that can kind of get in and are basically expected to be participating in the melee, then you have, uh, call it two opportunities to flank or one opportunity to flank. I don't know how we want to count flanks. But then you're, let's say you're in a situation where, like, I need the bard to hop in and do some flanking. The bard is now at risk. Uh, or let's go even squishier, right? Like, I need to, okay, look, I just need wizard. Please come stand next to this creature so I can get my advantage. <laughs> you're you're going to be putting these other characters at risk in order to gain the advantage. And so it's it's almost, in my mind, like raising and lowering the, the potential impact. Like, how crazy can this combat possibly get? The other thing I'll say, and I do... Okay, no, go ahead. You had a good reaction. Like, there was a <laughs> leading into it. So, well, just a l- long breath. Um, I'm imagining the parrot meme where the head goes back and then it's like, <laughs> you first. Sure. No, um, here's the thing. Even if that makes you tempted to walk somebody who maybe shouldn't be close to combat into combat as they would be without this rule, all you're doing is increasing options at no additional cost. And in a system that is already very hard to die in, giving every character a way to be stronger while only giving yourself a little bit of power back makes it harder for you to present an appropriate challenge to your players. Actually, this is the part that I wanted to challenge. So this is, the, this is actually the, the place I wanted to go next, and so we're here. And, and so now that we're here, okay... We we opened up with, like, what are the situations? Why and when do you want to introduce these variant rules? I would say if you're planning a campaign where most of the enemies will be humanoid, will be in groups, if your campaign is like, ah, oh, yes, you're going to be going through and fighting... Um, Red Hand of Doom. Uh, a, <laughs> yeah, I, okay, I was going to say a sequence of beholders, which famously typically don't enjoy having other beholders around, right? Then... You, this makes no sense because you're only giving your players advantage. But if you're playing something that's more like political intrigue, where you've got to march on a castle and take a castle, and what you're fighting are mostly like other enemy soldiers um, and this sort of thing, then you, it is give and take, and the the playing field is even, right? No, because (laughs) if you're running into that situation, what this means is that this is the same problem with how the math breaks down when you put a lot of one enemy into a fight against player characters. If I am letting, you know, my 12 second level human guards roll with advantage on my players, I am dramatically increasing the likelihood that my players get crit. And that is not fun for anybody because that's a random power spike out of a level two guard, and whoop, there goes my level four character. Uh, I mean, but that feels like a problem with how we calculate CR more than it is. <laughs> no, no, because you're straight giving them more rolls, which is more likely to hit a natural 20. But, but I do feel like statistically we can account for that. I guess that's my... Like, an, an, the number can't be 12 because 12 is too high, but maybe the number is six or the number is five. Whereas without this rule, maybe the number was something larger. 
Yeah, I'd say if you're if you're going to to go that route, adjusting the the CR calculation tables is probably a good idea. Accounting for having accounting for the flanking rule means that more creatures will be disproportionately more dangerous than they already are in a game where action economy fundamentally determines how effective a side is. Ten creatures facing you in an encounter is already a big problem. If it's ten creatures with flanking, like Random said gets even worse but if if you as a dm want your humanoid npc enemies if you want them to have easy access to advantage they have access to all the same options that players do NPC, uh, npcs monsters whatever they can shove they can grapple they can shove you prone uh they can take the help action to give one of their friends advantage i don't see a lot of dms do that because like when you're you're just trying to get through a fight and you're just trying to challenge your players, you're probably not thinking, yeah, I'm going to have this one Hobgoblin mook help their leader to give them advantage. Like, yeah, you probably don't think about that. Everyone's just swinging swords and kicking shins. If you feel like you need flanking and you as the DM are like, yes, I would like my monsters to flank, you already have all the options you need to do that, and flanking really does just tip things in the player's favor most of the time. And it limits your options because those multi-monster encounters become so difficult to balance. And if you just want monsters who can swarm your players flanking style, kobolds, bloodhawks, hyenas, anything with pack tactics will do the job just fine. I mentioned edge cases um, or abuse cases earlier. Let's talk about how flanking interacts with elven accuracy. Oh, God. (laughs) So elven accuracy, a much hated or beloved feat depending on your perspective that says first off you have to be an elf to take it it's in the name when you make an attack with dexterity int or charisma if you have advantage you can roll another d20 and choose which of the three you keep basically it's real good so it's already really good and then if i if you give access to people if you give access to advantage to people i understand how prepositions work <laughs> Just by standing on opposite sides of a thing, you should never play anything but elves with elven accuracy. It's that good. Like, yeah, okay. Although it's the patch there. It's like, yeah, just it doesn't work with elven accuracy. I don't know why. Uh, maybe, maybe, but at that point, you're going to be patching your variant, and you're very quickly going to get us get into a situation where it's like all patch, no code. Just hold it together with duct tape and bubblegum. It'll be fine. <laughs> yes. to, to really illustrate how good elven accuracy is, I wrote a blog post a while ago that I called Oops All Elves, where I, where I built a party around the elven accuracy mechanic. And without using any character options that are especially powerful except elven accuracy, I, I built a party that was so effective that they were essentially impossible to challenge by about level four. Elven accuracy is really really good and giving the party easy access to advantage really breaks things i, sh- I shouldn't say easy because there are plenty of easy ways to get it help true strike um shove other things you don't want to make it easier it's already easy enough right it basically a, a thing that you know we talked about when we were talking about let's not give additional options to spellcasters <laughs> Don't remove opportunity cost. Opportunity cost is there for a very important reason. Watsi has generally done a very good job of putting it where it needs to be. So I guess to to put a bow on the flanking, I feel like what would be fun 
what is the game where it does make sense to add the flanking variant? I think if you have the opportunity to give it to your monsters or your bad folks, if maybe they're not monsters, although maybe <laughs> they are monsters, maybe your player characters are the monsters. I don't know. I don't know your game. <laughs> and if your players really love the grid and they love engaging and figuring out just the right way to position everybody, I feel like I, I understand the argument that you've made and I, I don't necessarily want to take anything away from it, but I do, I would understand somebody who said like, no, this is a critical thing that I want to bring to the game. I want to flip that coin right quick. A lot of folks play with no map in 5e, no grid in 5e. And I, I can't wrap my head around how you would, <laughs> you would play with flanking. It would be basically, I mean, I, I, as I was reading through somebody else's blog post um, it, before this episode, you kind of can't. I mean, there's functionally no reason to. If you want to say, ah, I walk around to get behind the guy, sure. Whatever. But, <laughs> I mean, unless you're you're really at the point where you're being that granular in the theater of the mind, put it on paper. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I, I've had fun conversations about like, can I get all of those folks in a cone of cold or a cone of cold? <laughs> can I get it? Can I get it in my cone of impact from like a dragon breath? Uh, I, I've literally had a DM say to me, it's like, yeah, you can get like three out of the five of them. <laughs> do you, how do you know? Like, where did that come from? There's actually a table for that in the Dungeon Master's Guide. Oh, if you're making this up, here's how you make it up. Yeah, there, there's a table for how many creatures you can fit into an AoE based on the size and shape of the area of effect. It, I'll have to find it and look in the show notes and mention the page number, but the table doesn't make any sense. It says, lightning bolt, which is a 100-foot line, expect that it will hit four creatures, and I have never hit four creatures with a lightning bolt. Oh, obviously, they're going to line up so that you can use it. It makes <laughs> sense. Okay, look, we have to leave flanking because there's so much other awesome content to hit. Right quick, the in our show notes, behind the scenes... Uh, the phrase, the safety donut is written. <laughs> yes. Okay, so the, <laughs> the safety donut. So it, the way opportunity attacks work in 5th edition is intended to keep players and monsters basically just from running past each other or running away as soon as you get into melee without some opportunity cost. But there's no cost to moving around within a creature's reach, which creates what I call the safety donut. So, in the middle is the donut hole, where there is the monster, and then you have the donut, which is safety, and if you leave the donut, you provoke an opportunity attack. Now, once you're inside that safety donut, it gets real easy to flank people, because you can you literally run circles around them until you run out of move speed, and there's no cost. If you are going to use flanking, do something about the safety donut. Maybe, maybe, make, uh, maybe make it cost double movement to move inside an enemy's reach or provoke an opportunity attack or something. But you've got to fix the safety donut or flanking is just way too easy. Yeah, just, you, you can't move more than 180 degrees in the safety donut without invoking an opportunity attack. Sure. Yeah, because if, if at some point in 180 degrees, I'm going to cross into your line of sight with me moving while you're supposed to be frozen because it's my six seconds. Wait, no, that's not quite right. Okay, cool. Uh, spell points. Spell points. Tyler. Cool. Yes. So if you have played Final Fantasy or most computer RPGs, honestly, they Go generally on. use they generally use something called mana, which is your vague, indistinct, vaguely described pool yeah. of magicness. Bread from the sky, keep going, okay. Yeah, bread from the sky, magical ammunition, it's the blue orb in Diablo. Um, 
No, mana is almost always blue, just incidentally. Weirdly, yes. So spell points, instead of getting spell slots, your character is given a pool of spell points, which advances based on your level as a spellcaster. So your like half casters, quarter casters, etc., all advance more slowly than your full casters, like your wizard and your sorcerer. But it gives you a pool of spell points, which you then you can trade when you cast a spell to turn it into a spell slot. Now there is a little bit of nuance to it, like the the cost scales exponentially, so your more expensive spells are really expensive, and. In the regular system, when you hit 20th level, you get, like, two or three of most of your high-level spell slots, but you get, like, one ninth level and, I think, one eighth level. I'm forgetting off the top of my head. But under the spell point system, you can never cast in one day more than one spell of sixth level or higher. So, like, you get six, seven, eight, nine, and you get one of each. But your spells of fifth level and below become way more important. So not only does it change, like, the resource management for how you cast spells, but it also changes the importance of those low-level spells and of what are essentially lower-level spell slots. So it changes the meta of how you build a spellcaster and pick your spell list, in addition to changing the resource cost. Okay, I want to make sure that I understood this. So under the spell point system, I've hit level 20. I spend the number of points it takes to cast a sixth level spell. And because I have spent that many points, I will therefore not have enough points to cast a sixth, seventh, eighth, or ninth again. No, not not quite. It's just an explicit limitation. Like you just get one of these per day. Like you you can spend the points on it. Oh, that feels like, okay. That feels like spell slots with extra steps. (laughs) A bit. Yeah. Well, this rule's dumb. I feel like we can move on. But yeah. I'm sorry. Keep going. Let's let's talk the merit of it. It does feel a bit like spell slots with extra steps. If you have played Psionics in previous editions, especially third edition, there was a system called Psionics Points that you used to essentially cast spells, and you would upcast your psionic abilities by investing more points in them, which is essentially the same as just spending a higher level spell slot. So if you like a, a mana system if you like 3x psionics if you like those systems spell points can look like a lot of fun and i'm not saying it's a bad variant like it's very much personal preference i think i wouldn't say that it's worse than the default rules it's just different okay i i I guess real quick so so we have these points like i have you know these spells these sorceries that i want to cast and so i'm going to have these points assisted with like sorcery points uh and i'm going to (laughs) keep oh oh no (laughs) A, that's definitely one thing. You know, it, it if we're trying to keep track of a pool of points used for your magic abilities, that can definitely be intruding real hard on the sorcerer's whole shtick. Although they're already kind of being intruded on with uh, just being slightly weaker wizards. So <laughs> there you go. But I, right. I, and with that said, uh, Internet, I have never played a wizard in my life. I love sorcerers. I doubt I will ever play a wizard. They are definitely mechanically weaker spell points there's a lot of interesting stuff about them right so tyler touched on uh, how it really is kind of based on how 30 psionics worked and you know can feel like mana there's a lot of flavor reasons you might want to do that but mechanically it presents a lot of challenges so if you try and slap this onto a wizard what does arcane recovery do (laughs) oh yeah, they don't answer that. I hadn't thought no, about that No, they sure one. don't. <laughs> you know, what does a Pearl of Power do? 
suddenly there's a ton of mechanics that interact with spell slots that you need to completely redo if you want to adopt this system, assuming that your players are going to get access to any of these or assuming that you as a character are going to get any of these. It's, it's really cool thematically if you're willing to put in the work, but as Tyler mentioned where you know it just sort of ends up being about the same level of power, just a bit different flavor, there's kind of very little reason to put in all that work. Like the, the, the effort reward, it's not a great ROI. If you really want to say, no, I'm going to spend all the time that I need to, to flesh out all of this stuff because I want to have in my 5th edition game someone who stacks MP5 gear to the sky and heals through a rain, <laughs> great. You do that. That can be a really fun story to tell. It, it's just that there's there's going to be a lot that you need to think about to make it worth doing. Yeah, so one one more thing I'm thinking about. Uh, yeah, yes, and how many games actually make it to the higher levels where maybe that limitation of having one sixth or higher level spell is actually going to be an issue? I've I've literally never played a character above tenth uh, tenth level. D and D Beyond every once in a while posts stats on the characters on the site, and recently I saw a chart of characters by level that are in their system. I don't know the numbers off my the top of my head. I'll try to find the chart and link it in the show notes. But uh, rough estimate, something like ten percent of characters are tenth level or higher. So really tiny minority. Yeah, and and so maybe that limitation isn't going to kill us. And then the rest of it, I, I do really wonder. Like if you if if a player wants that, why not just play a sorcerer and and leverage what's there. Um, and then I guess here's a question: Do the, does the spell point system also impact the rules for monsters? As a DM, I would say just don't bother. It's not worth the effort. <laughs> I'm imagining doing the math to like how many yeah. spell points does this dragon have? <laughs> <laughs> this is where I'm. You know, so I was just talking about player options, but if you start getting into what monsters are doing, I mean, you know, with, with the with this change that's coming where we start seeing more of spell casting actions rather than, like, a spell list, that's going to become largely a moot point. But if you are trying to use un-transitioned content, <laughs> Crawford help you. That's, uh, you you're going to be in for a, a bad time. Yeah, okay. I, I don't love this, and I'm not going to defend it. <laughs> that's fine. Okay, fair. When do you want to add this to your... Uh, if, if you hate your players and your players hate you back, you just... Spell points, go. <laughs> Do it. <laughs> I'm saying, uh, it make, make them play a sorcerer. Make them be the the beta-tested psionic subclass and make them use spell points. Track three pools. Yes. <laughs> the worst. Hats upon okay. hats. All right, let's get... um. Le- let's... Yeah, we're going to do a lightning round. So there's a lot of other variants that I think we all wanted to talk about in 5e. Let's, we're going to hit these, and then we're going to get on to PF2. Okay. Uh, one, two, three, go. Okay. So uh, w- what we're going to do here is I'm going to list the variant. I'm going to one-sentence description what it is, and then you guys tell me if you would use it in your game. Climb onto a bigger creature. It lets you grapple big things and get advantage to attack them while they're dragging you around on their back. Randall, yes, no? Absolutely. Random, yes, no? Absolutely. 
Cool. Me too. All right. Disarm. It's a variant option for martial characters to disarm people using weapons. I can't remember the exact rules, but I believe it's an athletics check or something, but basically it just gives you a way to disarm people. Randall, yes, no. Okay, to be clear, so then they uh, they don't get to use their weapon for the attack, so they have to either do fist or improvise weapons. So you disarm them on your turn. Their weapon is now on the ground. I love that. That seems great. Yeah. All right, Randall? A long-time holdover from uh, previous editions. I resent the option being gone. I would put it back in. Same. All right, healer's kit dependency. You must spend one use of a healer's kit to use hit dice when you take a short rest. Randall, yes, no. I've never heard of this, and this is my favorite idea tied to hit dice I've ever heard. Because otherwise, hit dice make no sense. Like, yes. I feel like shit. I'd like, yes. I'd like to feel better. <laughs> yeah. Uh, random? Same? Yeah. So, I um, spoilers, I put this on this list. This is one of the ones written into the DMG or PHB. And we're going to talk about this in a more extended version in a, a later episode about mundane healing. I love this, and I would explore the heck out of this. Okay. Uh, Mark, so when you attack a creature, you can choose to mark it. You can have one creature marked, and you get an extra reaction on your turn to take an opportunity attack against that creature if it attacks someone else or moves away from you. You still you only get one opportunity attack per turn, but you can use your reaction for shield or whatever. I don't know. So, Mark, Randall, yes, no? I'm going to say no unless you're giving up like a bonus action or an action on your turn, because otherwise it, this just feels like... You know, an extra attack with more steps. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I, I go with no, basically just flat no. There is very little need to make combat combat more complicated. <laughs> this is, adds more complication in a way that's not really fun. I didn't mark Mark. I marked Tally. Go ahead. <laughs> I Sorry, agree. If, if you want to mark people, play a Cavalier Fighter. Uh, overrun. It allows you to shove through a creature's space using an athletics check and either an action or a bonus action to just say, I need to be behind you and you're in my way. Let's solve that problem. Randall, yes, no. Do you, is this an action or is this part of your motion? It is a bonus action you take while moving. Yeah. It, uh... It's like football charging past somebody. Okay. Do they go prone if I make, nope. if I, if, nope. no, you just uh... go through their space. I, I think I like it, but I feel like for certain creatures, this isn't going to make sense. So I'm going to say yes, but I'm going to squint at it. <laughs> okay. I will absolutely say yes. In fact, I have used this on the Paladin that I talk about all the time. Again, a holdover from 3.x. Very little reason to not include something because otherwise you have no rules to adjudicate when your player says, I want to run through the guy. And you say, eh? <laughs> <laughs> Just get inside the safety donut. Exactly. <laughs> All right, uh, shove aside. So it's like shove, but instead of pushing them away or pushing them prone, you can push them left or right. Randall, yes, no? Sure. Random? I give a, a yes, but, I mean, if you think, it, to add some verisimilitude, word of the day, <laughs> it takes more force to push somebody left or right than it does to push them away from you. I would probably say you can, you'll get disadvantage. That seems weird. I feel like that might actually be the rule, but I'm forgetting now. Well, then there you go. Yeah. Okay. Although I feel like if we if we combine this with climb onto something bigger and you try to shove something like one or size larger than you, like that gets <laughs> interesting, but keep going. <laughs> I push on the wall and I fall down. Sorry. Tumble. It's basically the same as overrun, but you use acrobatics. You basically just tumble through someone's space. That sounds fabulous, and I want to see it. Okay. Random? Uh, yes. Again, a, a, an option from 3.x that I, I would like to be here, and 
uh, maybe that leads to into a longer conversation about why athletics and acrobatics are the same skill with a different stat. <laughs> yeah. All right. And then finally in the speed round, cleave. So you, when you make a melee attack that drops an enemy to zero hit points, any remaining damage may be applied to another creature within reach if your original attack will, would also hit that creature. Your 20th level barbarian goes in, surrounded by kobolds, crit the first one, and just roll that damage in a circle. Randall, yes, no. Okay, RP-wise, I love this. Mechanically, I'm going to go with no. Okay, random? Honestly, same. In 3.x, this was a feat chain that you had to do. Um, So power attack into cleave, into great cleave, and then if you ended up as a frenzied berserker supreme cleave. (laughs) But I mean, I understand the the cool storytelling option, but as a mechanic, the way they introduce it here, I don't like. It. I'm gonna say I'm I'm working on a weird secret project involving uh, mass combat where I would very strongly recommend cleave, but in your typical game, probably not super great. Uh, if you do want to cleave, great weapon master lets you do it. Right, and that is the end of the lightning round. So every single one of those variants is in the Dungeon Master's Guide, including gritty realism, flanking, spell points, and everything in the speed round. If you've heard those those variants and thought, that sounds cool, grab a book. I mean, yeah, just to echo that, right? I apparently have not sat down and really read the DMG cover to cover, or even just the variants chapter, and I'm amazed that some of these things are in there. So maybe I should spend more time with the book. Yeah, the Dungeon Master's Workshop chapter is dense, and half of it is building a monster. See the Monsterizer. Uh, but the variants are all in there, and a lot of them are very fun. All right, cool. So I think it's time to talk about uh, Pathfinder 2.0. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited. So Pathfinder 2nd Edition is a very crunchy system compared to 5e. And changing the rules is daunting. It's a little harder to see how all of the rules interact because a lot of things are kind of buried in, like, the tagging system and things like that. And the the math is way less bounded than 5th edition. Like, 5th edition, a 20th level character can expect to have, like, a plus 11 on something they're good at. A 20th level character in Pathfinder can expect to have like a plus 40 on something that they're good at. And there's there's three different types of bonuses, and there's untyped bonuses, and there's penalties, and like all these other things. So like messing with the rules in Pathfinder can be super daunting, so take it slow. But that said, the Game Mastery Guide, which is the Pathfinder equivalent of the Dungeon Master Guide, has has some variants in it that are really, really cool, and I like them a lot. The, the first one I want to talk about is magic item variants. So if you've played Pathfinder 2nd Edition, you have a ton of magic items compared to 5th Edition. You'll have your armor, your weapon, you'll, you have like 10 different slots that you'll have items in, you'll have disposables, you'll have trinkets, you'll have disposable items hanging from your permanent items. Like it, It's very much like, to draw a comparison to any CRPG, like yeah, you've got like your feet, your pants, your belt, your shirt, your cloak, like all, all those slots, all of those have items in them all the time. And managing your items and your goal to buy those items is a huge part of the game and a huge part of character optimization. The magic item variant, the automatic bonus progression, takes away some of that stress. So, uh, random, I'm going to scare you for a second and compare it to Vow of Poverty from 3X. <laughs> I see the face. Um, <laughs> this takes away... 
the need for fundamental runes, quote-unquote. So the fundamental runes are your plus X on your weapon and your armor, striking runes on your weapon, and uh, I think potency they're called on armor. I, I looked at this like five minutes ago, I swear. So basically the things that provide the boring, like, ah, yes, I have a plus two to hit. Great. Uh, those boring bonuses, those go away. You just get those automatically as you gain levels, but it does change the way the loot has to be awarded because you know, you're you no longer spending gold on those massively expensive fundamental runes just to keep pace with the math of the game. So things get a little complicated. But it does, like, it makes certain builds easier. If you want to play a gunslinger and you want to have abrasive pistols, you no longer have to buy the item that applies all of your runes to all of your guns. You can be just like, ah, I'm, I'm level 20. All of my things are greater striking and plus three, so I'm just going to, like, never reload and leave a trail of pistols behind me. So I like it a lot, but it is very complicated. Random, you've you've played characters with Vow of Poverty in 3X. Uh, are you having scary flashbacks? Uh, I'm definitely remembering a charisma in the 80s, if that's what you mean. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not quite that bad. It it can be. I don't think I've seen up to 80. I think the highest I figured out how to get is like 26, but still. Let's see. So other variant I want to touch on is proficiency without level. So one of the things that makes the numbers so wild in Pathfinder 2nd Edition is you add your level to anything that you're proficient in. So you add it, well, yeah, you add it to your AC, you add it to your attacks, you add it to all of your saving throws, perception, any skill you're at least trained in. So the numbers run up very quickly as you gain levels and you're stacking bonuses that whole time. If you're familiar with 5e's bounded math and you come in and you're like, okay, adding two two-digit numbers was scary, now I'm adding a bunch of them. Like, ah, proficiency without level removes that level bonus to things that you're proficient in, which bounds the math much more strictly. So the numbers are a little less intimidating. And as a side effect, or maybe technically as the primary effect, lower level monsters remain threatening for your entire career. So like if you're a le- you're a level 20 fighter and you walk into a room, like normal rules, you walk into a room with 20 goblins, you're like I guess I'm going to spend several turns mowing down these harmless people. And then you introduce the proficiency without level and all of a sudden those goblins can still hit you. They're still going to have a slightly harder time because you've got like plus 3 armor and whatever and your proficiency is really high. But those low-level monsters remain a threat, which has an interesting effect. And, like, Pathfinder did a really good job of, here's this variant, here's how it affects the game, and it gives you new tables for how to calculate CR. So you don't have to worry about that. That's all done for you. Like, the hard stuff's all in there. It's wonderful. I I do think it's worth, like, highlighting kind of the difference between 5e, because I I think a lot of folks are maybe more familiar with 5e than Pathfinder 2, right? So in, in 5e, you have your proficiency bonus, and as you level up, your proficiency bonus increases, right? In, in PF2, you have your level, and then there's actually three tiers of, uh, I'll call it proficiency, right? So we have trained, we have something, and we have expert. And I'm forgetting what something in the middle is. Uh, master? I, I'm actually pretty sure it goes trained, expert, master, and then I think the top legendary. one is like legendary. Yeah. Oh, there's four tiers. Okay, I'm a, my character must suck. Okay, even better. Okay. Uh, and But the idea being that, right, you have these four t- tiers of proficiency, which are per skill, 
because you might take feats or for, for whatever reason, you might have more proficiency with a particular skill than other skills. Whereas in, uh, yeah, in, in 5e, it's just like, oh, you've hit a level and your proficiency bonus increases. So all the skills you have, magically, overnight, all at once, whoop, they all go up. <laughs> and so I do, I, I like the per skill in this case, it's it's a you know a link list, not a tree. But I, I like that in PF two better story wise. Like that feels more rewarding. But yeah, knowing that you have the crutch that also I get to add my level to it makes perfect sense. Taking that away, but then making the characters like at, at that point, the amount of energy or the amount of you know points per level that you're putting into particular feats to level up particular skills becomes so much more meaningful. Because you're not getting that per level bonus across the board. Yeah, I think I like the idea of that. Okay. All right. So the the funnel. Funnels are a concept that could fill its own episode, so we'll probably do that at some point. But to just touch on it very briefly, the idea of a funnel is you start with level zero characters who have, are just regular folks, just regular mooks. They go on some terrible, terrible adventure where almost all of them die, and whoever lives becomes the party. I believe the idea was introduced in Dungeon Crawl Classics. There's a there's an official variant for it in the Pathfinder 2nd Edition Game Mastery Guide. And then Arcadia Magazine from NCDM just published uh, Episode 9, which has rules for 5e. But that is its own episode. All right, folks, we did it. Uh, it is Season 2, Episode 1. Uh, we have completed it. Our next episode, the move towards inclusion in tabletop gaming. So this is going to be a continuation of the conversation we had uh, with the DD3 errata, uh, and it's going to be fantastic. Uh, I'm Randall James. You can find me at Jack or as Jack Amateur on Twitter and Instagram. I'm Tyler Campster. You'll find me at RPGBot.net on Twitter and Facebook, RPGBOTDOTNET, and Patreon.com slash RPGBot. And I'm Randon Pell. You won't find me on much social media, although in places where people play games, I'm often there as Harlequin or Harlequin. Although a few people have recently started beholding me or perhaps eye-tyranting me. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, we have a special announcement. Uh, everybody, our Patreon, uh, it sucks less now. It's exciting. <laughs> Thanks? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm getting right. Um, and, and so maybe, again, behind the scenes. So uh, Tyler is RPGBot and has made RPGBot happen for, you know, damn near 30 years now. Uh, <laughs> it's like nine. It's like nine. I'm not that old. Yeah, yeah, I've heard it both. I've heard it both ways. Um, and, and so he's had a Patreon, but now that we're doing the podcast, uh, th- there was kind of an ability to create uh, a tiering system, which I think made a little more sense. And so if you haven't looked at the Patreon in a long time, definitely take a look. If you're a longtime follower of the site who's gotten into the, po- uh, the podcast, uh, also go take a look because there might be material there that you'd be excited to have access to. Uh, all hail the Leisure Illuminati. Hail! <laughs> You'll find affiliate links for sourcebooks and other materials linked in the show notes. Following these links helps us to make this show happen every week. You can find our podcast wherever fine podcasts are distributed. If you enjoy this podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe. And please, please, please share it with your friends. If your question should be the question of the week next week, please email podcast at rpgbotnet.net or message us on Twitter at rpgbotdotnet. Uh, we didn't have a question of the week this week, but next week we'll have a question of the week. That week, which isn't this week, it's next week. You can find it by going to... Uh, 
that's fine. I got it. <laughs> no, I, I had it. Okay. Um, I started listening out. I started listening out the... Uh, the the uh, Patreon things. Yeah, all the yeah. different ways to do more Patreon. So you can find Patreon by going to patreon.com and searching for RPG Bot. Uh, you can go to your favorite search engine. Any permutation of the words RPG Bot and Patreon will give you the RPG Patreon. If you go to rpgbot.net and click on the Patreon link, it'll still bring you to Patreon. I think if you go to Twitter, and if you search Twitter for RPGBot and Patreon, it'll bring you to a tweet. In that tweet, there will be a link to the Patreon. So there's all kinds of ways to find the Patreon. Nailed it. Okay. Uh, Dan, so we agreed <laughs> to skip the both or other, except for when I say we agreed, they agreed, and I didn't read that, so I started oh. the section. I, I love you, and I'm sorry. If you want to kill the the uh, hey guys, what's the funnel? <laughs> I mean, no, honestly, the, the, the way that it was introduced works fine. It was mostly a time saving thing, which, by the way, yeah, good episode. I had a lot of fun. It's good to see you. Bye. 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 <laughs> hey, Tyler, quick, grab a screen grab. Oh, uh, oh wait, uh, hold on. Screen. I can't leave. Got it. I, I grabbed the screen. I think. And then Dan, uh, you have to kill the recording so yeah. he can leave safely, right? Bye. I'll just mute. Okay. <laughs> oh no! But they, they uh, Tyler, I was thinking, if you if you stick a uh, a screen grab, maybe it's... without the text. I I thought the Discord people might like it. You were like, hey, we recorded an episode, but oh, maybe uh... maybe without our text at each other. Yeah, uh... and it doesn't have to be this week. It was just a thought. That, like, oh god, <laughs> oh no! I I have Dan. I Dan, have you killed random. Um. Oh, that's fair. Okay. Okay. Here, I'm gonna I'm gonna save this, and I will do the thing. The thing. Okay. <laughs> Boy, that is an unflattering picture of all of us. Yeah. You know I'm, what? I'm... <laughs> Regretting that that suggestion. God, it's gonna be crazy high resolution, isn't isn't it? Or it's gonna be no. It is the tiniest dot. Oh, yeah. Which of these six pickles is you? There. <laughs> uh, All right. I don't think we're gonna post that one next time. To smile. All That's right. fair. <laughs> well, I think that was a good episode. We should do an episode on funnels, and if we can, uh, we should try and get somebody who knows something about them to come on the episode and talk about them. Maybe the guy who created Dungeon Crawl Classics, who is. I'm told the person. I bet he's people. Um... <laughs>
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.